Hello, it's Molly Mary O'Brien. Molly O'Brien? I can't remember if I use my middle name on here. Uh, it's it's me, Molly, from And Introducing. That's the podcast that you are listening to right now. This is a very special episode. Uh, like when teenagers in uh, shows about teenagers do uh, things like overdose on caffeine pills, and it's a very special lesson. A uh, very special episode. It's a solo episode. It's just me, just Molly, giving you a little uh, something-something before we get back on the reading train later in the summer after our Our Band Could Be Your Life miniseries, We Potacano. So this, uh, this episode is... Uh, uh, this is a fun one. I chatted with Andrew Lowe. Andrew is the lead singer and guitarist for the Jazz June. The Jazz June is a Pennsylvania rock band founded in 1996 that has been retroactively heralded as an early emo band. And now that we are apparently on our fifth wave of emo revival, I think we're at uh, emo number five. <laughs> uh, I thought it would be a great time to chat with Andrew about things like uh, playing rock shows in the late 90s, finding an audience long after you release the bulk of your music, and what happens when emo bands get showered with that sweet, sweet Mountain Dew money. Uh, all that and more can be found if you just continue to do nothing else but listen to the episode. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It is an honor and a privilege to be here. I'm I'm so glad. You are potting from London, England, is that correct? Yes, I am. I've been here. I, I grew up in New Jersey, and then I moved to Kutztown, Pennsylvania, which is where the Jazz June started, then moved to a bunch of different places, and in my 30s, moved to London. So I've been here for 12 years, something like that. Wow. How's the, um, what, what lockdown status are you in right now? We are in, holy shit, I hope we don't have another lockdown stage, but it seems like okay. we can see it in the distance. It's like a tsunami, you know, it's, it's, it's bright and it's okay right now, but like the seagulls are flying in a weird way. So yeah, we're, um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people vaccinated and that's good. And they've sort of blocked off a lot of the, um, international travel. So that, that should help, but we'll just have to... See how it takes its course. But yeah, like I said, I mean, I think everyone over 18 now is going to be vaccinated. Boris just announced that this week. So they're kind of like taking mm. it slow. But we just missed. We were supposed to um, be completely open on the 21st of June, but they've just pushed that back four weeks. But I feel like if history, you know, repeats itself, it might be eight weeks, two months, year, uh, not a year. But I mean, you know, it's uh, that final step of going, okay, everything's back to normal is probably a bit far away. Well, yeah, I feel like America is very much like, I feel like once they open things, they don't want to close them again, because they know like everyone is going to go insane. So different, different vibes for for different sides of the ocean. But from, you know, where you are now, I would love to get, you know, your kind of backstory on how you started making music in the first place. Well, like most emo, you know, people in emo bands, which, you know, I'd like to state for the record that at the time when I, we were at Jazz Dune was active, if someone said we we're an emo band, I'd be like, come at me, bro. Like, I'm not an emo kid. Now I look back on it fondly, uh, uh, which is kind of you know, kind of a 
tongue-in-cheek kind of phrase, but I've learned to accept it. Um, but at any rate, like most people who are in, who were or are in emo bands, I was like into hardcore and punk rock and the New Jersey like straight edge scene, and then went to college and um, yeah, I was kind of like, okay, there's some other stuff out here. I started listening to jazz, you know, and like really, exper- you know, because I started to go, oh, I could do other things on my guitar than just these power chords. And then um, it was like, I don't know, it was like a slew of like bands like Christy Funt Drive and um, you know, I had a friend who lived in Wisconsin and he would mail me seven inches, um, which seems like a really sweet thing right now. Like, you know, to, to, to send vinyl in the mail to your friend, you know, and, uh, he would be like, oh, check out some Midwest bands like the Promise Ring and I think the Get Up Kids and things like that, you know, early, early sort of seven inches. And, um, at the same time, I had another group of friends who were also in, used to be in hardcore bands and was one guy called me and said, hey, you want to start a band? We're starting trying to do something like Christy Front Driver. I don't remember the references, but um, that was kind of how the the Jazz Dune started. So we started rehearsing in like their, um, like a, not a dorm room, but it was like these off-campus, horrible um, sort of student accommodations called the Cliffs, which is like the party place. Everyone just go get, you know, have a beer blast and throw up on your shoes kind of thing. But we were like rehearsing in their house and then we'd have shows in their house. And that was kind of how we started to, just, you know, that was my first real band. I had some really bad wannabe hardcore bands in high school, but we played like one show and it was just really embarrassing for everyone. Terrible. So, yeah, the Jazz Dune, um, we just started playing on campus and then we had like a local scene of sort of like mixture of, you know, back in the, that in these days, because sometimes in the 90s, um, I would, you know, because let's see, I graduated night high school in 95 so yeah 96 97 something like that you'd have a gig but it would be like hardcore band pop punk band emo band whoever it was just like if you weren't sort of you know radio rock or you weren't hip-hop or something like that you could just play with whoever so we just started to play a lot of shows okay and yeah just one thing led to the next and the jazz dune became like a thing i guess well our thing Were you aware, I feel like, you know, being in college, that's like a very specific kind of, I don't know, not, it, it, it feels almost like a built-in scene in a way and that like you kind of know who you're playing for and like it's, I w- would imagine, somewhat easy to like get the word out of when you were playing. When, when did you kind of start interacting with like a larger scene, would you say? Um, I don't know. Like, I think uh, the one guy who was in the band <clears throat> was just super ambitious and like, I don't know how... Oh, I guess what happened was our bassist was... His brother was in a band with Adam and his package, that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another band called Franklin, who all Philadelphia-based. And uh, so he kind of knew some people who were... And he was in a band called Disregard, who one of the guys, I think, was in Ink and Dagger and Frail and some other bands. So he kind of knew some people. So basically, we we were like, hey, why don't you come to Kutztown and play a gig in like our friend's basement? And they would come. And then from that, we'd be like, 
hey, how do we get a show in Philly or how do we get a show in whatever, Harrisburg or whatever? And people would just like photocopy like notebooks with people's names written down on them and give them to us. And then we got so many of them that we're like, hey, let's book a tour off of these phone numbers. You know, someone, I think someone, at one point, someone from like Hot Water Music was like, yeah, I'll just let you photocopy my book. And then we're like, cool. And then we just call these people up. Hey, can we, and it was obviously like, student accommodation so someone's parents was paying like the uh <laughs> the phone bill so that helped you know and then we would just yeah we just could be like okay cool we've got you know spring break or easter break or christmas break like let's book a tour and they'd always be these crazy things with like 15 hour drives in between but we were just all like in school didn't matter you know no consequences like of making money so we didn't have to like pay for a rent or anything so we were just like all right cool we'll just go out for two weeks over whatever Christmas break and uh, play, even if it's like a tiny show, hopefully we just get enough gas money to get to the next place and like, you know, eat peanut butter sandwiches and stuff like that. So it just like slowly happened. But we also met the guys from a band called Mid Carson July mm-hmm. and they were really cool. Um, they were from some, I was like Sunbury, Pennsylvania, which I can't even remember. It's somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, but they were really cool too. There was two older guys who used to, um, brothers who would be like here's a a number for someone here or hey come with us on this you know weekend tour or something like that it's just all kind of happened like meeting people meeting another person at that show meeting another person and then at that show we met someone who was like hey i'm starting a record label we'll put out a seven inch and and stuff like that which actually is a (laughs) that's kind of a funny story because um we put out a seven inch with the label and I don't even know the guy's name anymore, and I don't have any hard feelings towards him because it's all just funny, like all this stuff when you're young and you're in a band and everything's so serious. But yeah. I think we put out a seven inch with him, and then soon after that, a guy from Canada was like, Hey, you want to put out a full length? We're like, Yeah, cool. And then he got really mad. And in the remaining seven inches, he would put a, a note <laughs> that said, The Jazz June, June owes me $400. <laughs> Tell them to. Give it to me if you see them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That is so, that is very strong, like analog, petty energy. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and then we put out a record and then we put out another one. some point um we we did get a booking agent that really helped obviously because mm-hmm. her name is eva from fada booking and she's we still know her actually she thank god she still um talks to us because we were such assholes when we were younger we're like what do you mean we're only getting paid 50 dollars? do you know who we are i mean not in those <laughs> words but like we were just uh, just slightly uh, obnoxious to her but at any sure. rate <laughs> <laughs> so she had like hot water music on her uh, roster and oh, flogging Molly and people like that. We never played with flogging Molly, but we played with Hot Water Music all the time. And then, yeah, so she'd be like, Hey, do you guys want to go to Chicago and play with Hot Water Music? And we're like, What day? Like, okay, on a Saturday. All right, we'll leave our classes on Friday at three, drive all night, play the show, and drive home and be school, be a class on Monday. Cool. Yeah, we'll do it. You know what I mean? It was just like we just had a van and no responsibilities and. We would just play whatever. So it just kind of like 
yeah, we would just take every opportunity and she would just kind of give us lots of crazy stuff and we'd usually always say yes. So um, that led her to thinking us for a lot of different stuff. So what were these shows like in terms of like who was there, how many people were there, like what was the vibe? Yeah, most of them were... Sometimes, a lot of times we would headline or maybe we'd put like one show in a long weekend with a bigger band and then we'd book two other shows. So there'd be like six people, you know, at the Friday and Sunday show. And like, I don't know, if we were playing with Hot Water Music, they would probably draw 200 people or something like that. Um, so, but most of it, you know, even our, to- you know, our tours, because, you know, you might, again, if you're going to say, I'm going to go for two weeks to from here to here or I have to go from Pennsylvania and get back to Pennsylvania in two weeks, but I want to do a U.S. tour, you're just going to play anywhere. So, you know, we would just roll up to some place in, like, South Dakota, and it would be an enormous venue, and there'd be, like, seven people there. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, there was a kind of a lot of that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, but, you know, it's funny, because I think about this a lot, where we would we'd be like, we'd have four or five really terrible shows where no one showed up. And then we'd have one that would be like maybe 50 people there because there was a local band or maybe our friend's band played and they knew people. So um, yeah, then even, you know, it was not like we would all of a sudden get a lot of money, but we would like, okay, we've got enough to get to the next show. And now our spirits are lifted and let's Mm -hmm. like keep going. Whereas like the last four days, we just were like miserable, you know, sweaty, not showering, sleeping on someone's floor next to a dog's you know bed or something like that (laughs) somehow every time we were so low that we're just going to go home the next show would just be great and then be like all right let's go you know continue the tour and finish and stuff that makes sense i mean having just finished talking about our band could be your life uh that sounds like the if the one uniting thing across genres and types of people is that the accommodations were uh not the best (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I remember, you know, trading stories with my friend's band um, from London and he said that they went to a gig or they stayed at someone's house and there's a tree growing out of the toilet. And they're like, how is this? You know, (laughs) and uh, I remember the our worst one was I don't remember where it was, but instead of a garbage can, they just had a garbage room. Oh, Jesus. So it was just like this sort of like slanted pile from the floor to the sort of, uh, you know, so the halfway up the ceiling, and that's where they would just throw their garbage. But, you know, a lot of punk shows, a lot of punk gigs and stuff like that. Um, You know, bless the kids who put it on, because, like, you know, they had to Mm -hmm. rent the hall, or maybe it was a squat, and, you know, and they're always really accommodating. They'd always make you, like... I remember the one guy brought... He's like, oh, we were late for the show, and he's like, oh, you know, I I made you dinner, but um, I didn't you guys didn't have time to stop by, but I brought it. He just had this massive Ziploc bag full of like pasta and sauce. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're like, cool, man. I think we're going to go to Denny's, but like, that's really sweet of you. Like, we'll bring it with us and we'll eat it tomorrow or something. (laughs) (laughs) To go. I love that. That's amazing. You formed in 96, correct? Yeah. Around then. That sounds about right. The late 90s to me, you know, looking back on them, having not been that old when they happened in real time, one of the weirdest times for rock music in general to me, just in terms of like, you had legacy bands who were kind of going crazy with like weird alternative, like they were trying to like hit the alt rock uh, thing, you know, new metal was kind of bubbling up. Uh, My favorite 
anecdote is you know garth brooks put out an an alternative record with an alter an alter ego were you aware of this weirdness when you were playing in a rock band in the late 90s or was that kind of not did, did it not feel that way at the time what do you mean the sort of like the the like the merging of like major labels with like alternative music kind of thing yeah, that that kind of thing where it seemed like, you know, it, it, alternative was becoming major and major was becoming alternative. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally, totally. And uh, it's funny because I was thinking about this. I was reading one of the interviews from um, the emo anthology with the guy from Sensefield. And, um, you know, basically it seemed like, yeah, there there would be like this band that you'd play with on tour and you'd be like, they'd be like, they didn't know each other. You could tell they didn't know each other, but they were in a band together and they're obviously like put together by a producer or something like that. And the other thing is, is that when we first started, you know, I was always into hardcore and straight edge and stuff before that. And uh, I was actually in a straight edge band called Atari um, before the Jazz June. But the thing is, so those people hated us. Like the hardcore scene was like, I mean, I used to have people say to me, hey, uh, I heard Derek doesn't go to hardcore shows anymore. I was like, uh yeah I don't I don't know he's got a job or whatever and and they'd be like I thought you said he was true true for life and I was like uh <laughs> <laughs> I was like I don't know if he did he say he was gonna go to hardcore shows until he died like at any rate so yeah there's that there was that kind of like element of it so basically if we were like sounding different because you know we weren't playing hardcore anymore hardcore people especially like pennsylvania new jersey new jersey they're just like you know you've changed you've broke your edge you know fuck you 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 know we don't want to have anything Mm -hmm. to do with you but then like and they all and they would like there would be the early sort of like message boards and they'd be like the jazz dude or a bunch of sweater wearing whatever um and we were like what (laughs) whatever you know what i mean like i literally didn't even own a sweater but not the point (laughs) they didn't like us But then all of a sudden, once they kind of saw that, like, you know, the emo, you know, whatever thing was starting to get like a little bit of attention, all of a sudden, all these ex-hardcore guys were starting emo bands. And I'm not saying it was on purpose, but, you know, there is um, an element of people being like, oh, we're going to play this emo thing because I guess it's popular now. So we want to kind of like get signed Mm kind of thing. So, yeah, there was a Mm -hmm. bit of like that where we were emo for life, man. Like we were, it was just a sort of, um, it, it, it did, it did start happening and we started to notice there was more agents at shows and booking agents and even the clubs. Like, I mean, especially afterwards when I was in other bands or, you know, like side projects or whatever, and you'd call up the Mercury lounge and they'd be like, and I'd be like, Oh, I'm going to talk to Jimmy. Cause I knew him or whatever the guy's name was. And it'd be like, just so you know, only agents can use this line kind of thing. It's like, really? It's just the Mercury lounge. It's like only a couple hundred person menu. So yeah, it did start happening in a weird way. And things were like, people were telling me that I should write songs about something. And I was like, that's really offensive. Like, <laughs> what the hell? You're like, yeah. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, like I don't know. Should I write about you? How much of an asshole you are? No, but like, um, no. It'd be like you should write something more specific things that people can sing along to. You know that kind of like sl- subtle thing. Like, hey, you should you should do this, or maybe you should try that, or mm-hmm. um, you know. And it was just kind of like I don't really care. You know, like it would be great to be professional musician, but. Uh, I we were just never the type of band who could like 
kiss anyone's butt. I mean, there were some bands that we'd play with and be like, oh, the guy from the Warp Tour is here. You know, let's go talk to him at a gig or something. And then I'd be like, oh, yeah, cool. And if they were just a dick, I wouldn't talk to them. You know, I wouldn't care that. Sure. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, hey, how you doing? Oh, you're an asshole. Never mind. Later. Like, there was a bit of that, just kind of like people creeping around the scene. We did have, um, I mean, we, we never got like any sort of... Um, major label offers or anything like that. But we started to have managers and agents go like, okay, like, tell us what you're up to and let's have a meeting and things like that. But to be honest, a lot of that was really starting to happen like right when we were breaking up. after that because i was thinking about this too how i remember after college um i went to be an english education teacher and realized i hated teaching uh-huh. i had no like employable skills <laughs> that i wanted to use <laughs> at least so i kept going for like interviews at record labels and they'd be like yeah you can work here as an intern and work at a bar job at night and i was like oh, i need to like pay rent you know um mm-hmm. but and then so i ended up getting a job at a concrete company um like in the complaint department literally it was just like the way wow (laughs) like a literally new jersey concrete company with these guys like yo where's my fucking concrete it's 20 minutes late (laughs) (laughs) and uh, (laughs) that's tough (laughs) but yeah so anyway so i had this miserable job because it's the only job i could get and i remember driving over um from i was going to new york city i think for a gig or um and hang out or whatever because I lived in New Jersey at that time I moved back to New Jersey and I was going over the bridge that like crosses from where you can't get like local radio stations like Seton Hall or Mammoth College anymore you have to listen to New York City radio stations so I put in like mm-hmm. Z100 and I heard like Thursday and then thrice and I was like ah fuck man you know uh- <laughs> <laughs> we should have stuck together and maybe talked to that guy kiss, kiss that guy's ass from the warp tour because they obviously you know you know they're, they're i'm working at this concrete company and they're playing on z100 so you know who's i can't really uh you know so yeah i but yeah i mean to be honest it, it did start happening and we saw it happening and we heard bands talking about it um and um you know i guess the only cool thing i could say about it is that they seem to want to like they seemed to want that sound and they wanted that look. So it wasn't like the people, mm-hmm. most of the people weren't like playing music that they didn't like. I mean, some of the bands started to play just to me, it just sounded like pop punk, you know, which was like, that's cool, but mm-hmm. I'm just not, I don't want to be in a pop punk band. If that means getting on a, on the radio and then, yeah. So they were just kind of like, okay, well we've been, you know, and some of the bands, you know, we would only tour on the weekends and, Christmas just breaks or whatever it might be. Some of these guys were on the t- tour for 200 days a year and they were still kind of on the same record labels as us. So I was like, oh, fair enough. If they're going to get a deal or like get some paid something for it, you know, they put a yeah. lot more effort than us. So go for it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think um, we were just never able to like bring out a, a sound or a song that would have been like friendly for the radio and this new kind of style of emo alternative rock or whatever it's called. Uh, yeah, I, wa- I wanted to ask what what it felt like to kind of see, I guess this would have been 
third wave emo. We can we can get into the waves. The, this is this is the stuff that I was listening to in high school. Basically, was like your Thursdays, your Thrices, your your dashboard confessionals. I guess. Um, and I was I, personally me because I was also reading a lot of like music magazines, music criticism, and I feel like generally the mood was that 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 scene or like the emo label was kind of uh, nagged by music press and so i i kind of got into emo music in, through like a social way like recommendations from friends and so i want i want to get your take on like how did you feel like the like the label was being made fun of at the same time as it was being popularized yeah definitely i mean i remember going to so we were on um initial records which was based out of louisville kentucky and um even though we had stopped touring and playing regularly they would still like put us on this thing called crazy fest um and it was like a big festival and it got bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where like hate breed and the locust and like really big bands were Mm -hmm. even jimmy world and you know some of the days were huge and they would just stick us in the middle you know because it was like we're on his label so he would stick us in the middle of some crazy bill and there'd be like thousands of people there and i remember they did one um a huge one and it was like this big vagrant package tour is like uh alkaline trio dashboard confessional two other uh, hot rod circuit and someone else anyways and they had tour vans and stuff and i had been like again working at this fucking concrete company like not even like really realizing what was going on and these guys were like smoking bongs and like a huge you know like <laughs> a bus or whatever and uh i remember when i had had never heard or heard of Dashboard Confessional. I heard the rest of them, but for some reason, Dashboard Confessional just kind of went under my radar. And I remember he played, and I was like, holy shit, every person of this 3,000-person you know, show is singing along to every word. And I also noticed it was like, it went from being sort of like 20-something nerdy emo kids with horn rim glasses and tight shirts to like mm-hmm. younger teenage kids, and they were like, singing every word like oh my yeah God. <laughs> yeah for sure. So I, church yeah exactly so i saw that and i was like that's when i realized whoa this is really about to blow up or maybe he was or whatever and um you know and then yeah obviously like saves the day was on mtv and thursday got really big especially on the east coast because um yeah i think they're from new jersey or pennsylvania or some connection of that those states um and um Yeah, and I really saw it getting huge. And like I said, I think some of the bands still... I think Thursday still sounded cool. Um, Saves a day, you know. I I don't know. I was never really into it at the time because I think I just was like... I was just had heard enough of emo at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) for sure. And I was just on to other things. Um, And um, so I was like... Yeah, I just kind of saw it as this thing that was kind of happening and some of it was kind of lame and you know there would be like mountain dew tour with like whoever 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 but um you know to be fair it's like i always kind of looked at it like okay some of the music's lame and obviously some of the bands are manufactured and then the whole my chemical romance thing it was like it was just like hot topics personified in a band it seemed like i mean you know those guys might be cool and they might have come from other cool bands but when i kind of like was introduced to them it was like the nail polish thing and like Mm-hmm. I just kind of thought like, um, yeah, some of it is obviously manufactured by some producer 
and some of it is just really good bands who've been playing for years and years and years and years and years and years, and they actually sound yeah. really good. Like Thrice, you know, I, I even if I listen to them now, I wouldn't ever think that they would be on the radio, but I guess it was just a moment in time where people were open-minded to weirder, louder, different kind of music, so that's kind of what happened. But um, yeah, I mean, definitely at the time, I was like annoyed by it, for sure, because I, I missed the boat. But now when I look back, it's like... You know, there must be a lot of fun <laughs> be on a Mountain Dew tour with a bus versus like in a van. <laughs> right. All the Mountain Dew you can you can possibly drink, I assume. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the the band kind of w- would you say the Jazz June broke up or more just kind of like dissolved hiatus, like, you know, stopped making music? Yeah, we just stopped touring and all the time because basically what happens was um we like all graduated the same year um, and we're like, okay, this is it. It's the band now, you know? So we had this big, like our longest sort of three month tour. I think the first two weeks were by ourselves, And then the last however many weeks were with a band called Elliot, who was on initial as well. So we were good friends with them. And then we were going to go to Europe for like two months. So it was like a pretty hefty tour. It was like, seemed like, okay, this is the real deal. This is really going to be cool. We don't have to get back to school in September so we can continue, go to Europe, whatever. And then it just like, some of it was good, but we got this really bad sort of opening uh, contract. And it was like, you only make $100 a night, even if the, you know, headliner makes... 10 million like you only get 100 if they don't make you know enough you might not get a hundred dollars so we were just like this three-month tour traveling all over with no money and it, it just we just started to break apart at the seams and also because we had all gone to school we just graduated we're like fuck this i'll just go work at whatever job i had just gone to school for and not like literally eat like a peanut butter sandwich every night um and like you know sleep on in the van kind of thing i mean don't get me wrong. We had a lot of fun because we were really good friends. And it was like, we're all, again, still no responsibilities. We didn't have jobs and stuff to go back to, you know, we could crash with our parents for as long as, you know, typical sort of like post-college sort of years. We all just, you know what, it's great. In a way, it's good. We never got signed or never money never really came into it because we're all still like Mm -hmm. super good bestie friends. Like we all still like hang out all the time. Obviously, I live in London now, but I'll see those guys all the time and hang out and I know their kids and everything else. And we just, you know, we did have massive arguments and fights and things on the road, but like, we just thought like, man, this is not something that's going to sustain us, obviously. So why don't we just kind of like put the brakes on and, and then we even put out an album a couple years later. played crazy fast we played some other shows but um i think at that point we didn't have uh eva booking us anymore so that became really hard to try to get shows again because like i said you couldn't they would only talk to agents at the clubs that we were playing all the time and um yeah and then we just kind of like hung out and played every once in a while when we could and then um obviously i moved here and then uh we played some shows right before I moved over here, which are really cool. Um, and then we put on a whole album, like, back in two, 2013. 
we haven't done anything in a long time, but that's not to say we won't. I was going to ask if there if there are plans for future stuff. We basically every kind of six months, someone goes, "Hey, let's play some gig, like let's write some songs," and everyone's like, "Yeah," and then we just I don't know, just life takes you know i mean the thing is some of the guys own their own businesses another guy uh has moved a bunch of times with his job and dan um who still lives in he's still lives in pennsylvania he works a lot and he's got kids so it's just like hard to get everyone to commit the time that um that you need to write a whole album especially online because you have to like sit in front of a computer At least if it was like hey let's go out on a tuesday night hang out and drink some beers and play fine but if you're like sit in front of your computer computer and write a bass track to like this mp3 <laughs> i sent you it just doesn't seem as fun you know <laughs> <laughs> in the in the early days when you were writing songs was it like complete collaborative in a room or was it like people were would come come bring stuff that they had already worked on and it was put together like how, how was that process in comparison to the the the, the mashing up of uh, digital songwriting yeah you know it's cool it was a really cool thing that i never really been able to replicate it in the same way with any other i've played it a million other different bands of different genres you know before and since and um you know sometimes i would come in with a part and we would just jam in it forever and the cool thing is Justin and Dan, you know, we all like the same music, but also some of the different music. So they'd always come up with... So even if, you know, bass and drums didn't write the song, they would just come up with something that would just take the song to another level. So I'd have a part and then another part. And then Brian would be like, oh, what about this part? And I'd be like, oh, we'll end it with this. And it was just... In, it was a very, yeah, very collaborative thing. So it would mostly start from like guitar riff, because I think a lot of the stuff I would write the vocals afterwards, which I don't do anymore. I totally, it's more mostly vocal led. Like I'll, I'll like sing a part and record on my phone and then I'll write the music to the vocals. So then it was just like music first, then I'd write the vocals. Sometimes, you know, I just have to record something at the studio because I was like, I don't, last minute, you got to have some vocals, so I'll sing something. So yeah, it was very, very collaborative. We, but we also, you know, we lived on the same campus as each other. Uh, some of us lived with each other, and we'd always just be playing like twice a week. And we're tour it, during the, you know, the whole sort of however many years I was at. Kutztown Five, I think we played almost every single weekend somewhere, uh, whether it was on campus, Allentown, or like yeah, four hours away. We're always on playing, so we just played so much that it just became sort of like second nature, which is just uh, yeah, it's just like a unique situation because we weren't a professional band, but we were able to play so much just because of the situations we were all in. I feel like you're a professional band. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds professional enough to me, you know? Yeah, definitely. We, you know, was, you know, we, um, well, I guess it's just that we never, it was never our full-time job. It was always something that was on the weekends, spring break, summer break, whatever, because, and then, yeah, we broke up right when, uh, for, from that last tour. And then, yeah, that, uh, so yeah, we, I never considered it to be like, we're going pro, man, you know, this is it. This is our thing. It was always like a yeah. thing we were doing while we were doing other stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, we fucking only played enough and we released, and you know, at the time too, it was cool. Cause like, I don't know why exactly. Cause like, you know, I'm sure someone smarter than me could figure out, but like, it felt like, every, you know, you could just maybe, I guess it was that people could sell music. So like, 
you you would get offers for records all the time. Like people are like, yeah, I'll put on a seven inch. I'll put it, and they would invest the cash because they knew they could sell it. And then shortly after that, it was like no one was buying anything, so it, was, it became a lot harder if you weren't a big band to get a label, a decent sized label, to take a punt on you and go, oh yeah, I'll put you know press a thousand records because that's a lot of money if they're not going to make it back. So they would put out releases all the time. And Initial, who you know was our sort of like biggest label that we got on and stayed on for a couple of releases. They had like a huge distribution company, so they already had money from that. So even if we didn't sell a lot, they could still have cash and to put into, you know, the recording of our next album and stuff like that. And they sent us to fucking In Your Ear with, you know, the Fugazi sort of studio with Jay Robbins as the producer. And it's not like it cost a lot of money, but it still cost, you know, some money. And they were confident they could at least recoup that, if not hopefully make a little bit. So... Um, yeah, it was just sort of a different time when people could actually sell stuff so you could just put out more records. So, you know, literally almost every song we wrote, or at least definitely every song we recorded got released. Yeah, yeah. Right. That makes sense. I feel like just hearing this, it really does prove, especially the idea that, you know, you, you all were writing songs together and really kind of like connecting and felt like you were, you know, good, good at doing that. And the freedom of not having to have a job and not having to worry about money, like while you're in that college setting and then just the reality of the economics, I don't know, it just makes me wish that we could just like give people money to, to just like be artists. Well, they <laughs> I do like it. that. I know they do it in certain like European countries. Yeah. They'll just be like, oh, the government gives everyone in Norway $5,000 to record their first album. It's like, what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. <or> you, <laughs> you know, just supporting the arts or even like, I've done a lot of touring through Germany and stuff with punk bands I've been in since I moved here. And it's like, you'll go to a venue and they'll hand you cash when you walk in. You're like, uh, cool, thanks. And they're like, yeah, this is all paid for by like the government. So like, it doesn't even matter yeah. if we make money. It's like they've already paid for everything. And then they have like at the venue, they have like an apartment that you can stay at and, you know, with like bunk beds and, the you know, like for everyone to have a bed and like. A, you know a kitchen and everything and fucking laundry and you're just like what this is they've got it right here we're in the states it's like you show up they're just like okay no free beers don't touch the catering that's for the headlining <laughs> band and uh good luck finding a place to stay there's some crazy guy jimmy who might let you sleep in his <laughs> garage you know what i mean you're like okay cool <laughs> Well, just, you know, we, one, one artist we covered on the show was Sun Ra and it just, I mean, that man was not good at accounting (laughs) and yet he was able to like have a life in the arts and it was because he kept getting like grants and stuff. Like I just, uh, in a, in, in an ideal world in that, you know, in that picture of the meme where there's like flying cars and shit, I'm like, just throw (laughs) money at musicians. Like, come on. Well, you think, especially with music, you know, so much of American music is so you know, popular around the world that it would be something America. I don't want to say America is not proud of its music heritage, but like you'd think the government in some way would just like dish out more money to, to, to artists to keep them, you know, to keep that sort of thing going, especially like jazz or, you know, some of the traditions that started in America where it's like, okay, we need to support these people. Um, whereas, yeah, it just really, it's Europe is just much more set up for that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, man. Were you aware at the time that you were first in the Jazz June of like being classified as emo 
did it, how did you feel about that? Would you have preferred a different classification? And how do you feel in general about the desire or the urge to classify music in these like very particular ways? Four part question. <laughs> Answer as many parts as you want. I mean, yeah, no. Okay. So no, I never would have ever called ourselves, you know, if we had MySpace, we wouldn't have picked emo as the, you know, qualifier. Um, we saw it as a, as a, as a curse word because it was mostly hardcore kids calling us fucking emo band or whatever. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that qualifying music to such a degree, the one thing I do, because, you know, this is like the genre I know the most about. It's like, if someone says emo, you know, that could mean a lot of different bands that sound very different from each other. So I can understand why people do it. And it's probably like journalists having to write about stuff and saying this is a whatever band. Um, and and in a way, I get it. And then I also think it was later on in our sort of career, whatever you would call it, it was a uh, it was a benefit because, you know, we would be the only emo band in fucking Kutztown. So whenever any emo band came through, the promoter would be like, oh, I don't know, call the jazz dude and they'll play. And we got to play uh -huh. with like At The Drive-In and Knapsack and all these crazy bands that like, you know, were way bigger than us. But they we were like the one emo band in the whole area. So and then also people would be like, oh, then then the venue owner would be like oh emo bands bring more than whatever other bands so i'll book more emo shows and put so um it, so, so yeah it's, it's had this sort of like really weird um love-hate relationship with it over the years and now like i said i just kind of look back on it and uh, it's just really in, in an endearing way and i think um yeah so guy i'm gonna pronounce his last name sorry Guy pachoto Oh yeah, uh, we've got we've gotten in trouble for our for our pronunciation of uh, Fugazi members. So yeah, solidarity. Yeah. But I'm I'm with you, man, because like I always I still call him Ian McKay. I I just can't yeah. not call him Ian McKay. Just that's yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. So sorry, sorry, <laughs> Ian. Right. <laughs> Please beg my forgiveness. And Gee, I'm not calling you guys, so I'm not you know at least I've got you there, but um, your last name will always elude me. Anyway, he was he he was on the Washed Up Emo podcast, and it was great because he was saying that like you know because everyone's like Rights of Spring was the first emo band or whatever, and he always was just like I just didn't get it, I didn't know anything about it. He's like it was so it was so many years later that you know people were people never went to the gigs when the band was together. It wasn't for years and years later that all of a sudden they were like looked at as this you know sort of like genre defining emo band. And he said at first he just didn't really care and he didn't really pay attention and thought it was a bit silly but then he saw over the years that people were like the people who were like emo kids were kind of like you know outsiders outcasts they weren't like um you know and and he said well you know if they identify with me i want to identify with them because you know i was that kid too in high school who was like beat up by the jocks or whatever and if they're you know so obviously might seem a bit silly to a 28-year-old man to call himself an emo band, but if you're 15 and you're like, I'm emo, that means something to you. And that's kind of important, like, for kids, um, you know, building their own identities of, like, I am not this, I am that, and I'm against that, so I'm going to do this. And, and it was a lot of the reasons why I got into, like, straight edge and hardcore in high school, because it was like, I went to a very football rah-rah 
high school mm-hmm. and it was like it was like a war zone in the in the parking lot like after school it'd be like the jocks versus the hippies versus the hardcore kids and everyone was like so we were like friends with all the hippies and the goth kids because we were having to fight i never i didn't really get into many fights but some of my friends did they were like much more sort of like i don't know tough than less of a wimp than I was but like they would talk back to them and be like fuck you and and get into fights and stuff and it was just like okay I'm with this gang and these guys we're against them and it's like you know mm-hmm. at that age it's like so important you know you're like really forming your identity of who you are and what you are and if you're whatever a 15 year old kid and, and you find whoever my chemical romance and you think this is these are the people who are singing to me and speaking to me you know that's that's uh that's a cool thing so I don't know I I I'm for it, you know. I'm I'm an I'm an emo 40-year-old emo guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the it's funny the I I wasn't aware of the like the fifth wave emo thing coming up and then I saw a tweet that was like had categorized like what seemed like a zillion bands and being like this is like the like soft DIY versus the like and I my initial reaction to that is always to be like oh I'm so exhausted like I just want to listen to the music but the categorization thing I think on a social level even as opposed to like a sonic level because as you said lots of emo bands sound way different from each other and it's maybe more of like a vibe of of what the feeling is yeah and then if that makes sense or if that resonates uh with with one uh i com- i completely i get it <laughs> and this yeah, is me as a it, former emo kid as well who maybe <laughs> still is i i identify well exactly yeah and um you know i i, I think like um like are you aware of the genre crab core Oh, I sure am. Yes. Yeah. So I, when I hear about stuff like that, I'm like, I love that. Like, they're called Crabcore. They're basically, to me, they sound like, I don't know, the bands who are Crabcore, like, sound like corn. And I don't even know what I would call that. <laughs> I would just call that heavy metal because I don't, sure. I know a bit about some heavy metal, but not that kind of heavy metal, new metal. Um, but it's like mm-hmm. so funny that it's called Crabcore because they put their bases really low and they look like little crabs dancing around stage. And I just think that's such a gr- I just love that, you know, but do do. But then like the bands who started doing that, um, they definitely didn't say, hey, we're starting. Let's start a Crabcore band. But then like maybe four years later, kids in high school are like, let's start a Crabcore band. You know what I mean? It just becomes yeah. a thing. <laughs> it's like a me- it's a meme almost like a yeah. genre meme. And then it's taken seriously because it's like, oh, yeah, Crabcore, cool. Like uh, one of the crab, <laughs> one of the Crabcore bands puts out like the best Crabcore album, and everyone's like, oh yeah, we respect them. We respect Crabcore now. <laughs> and I do feel like it, it's a time where you know, so like at this point, like on the internet, someone could say, could be like, I'm a Crabcore stan, and that's my thing, and like be completely earnest about it, and. It would make sense, like the the current like mood on of fandom on the internet. I think it makes total sense to kind of take something that almost seems like a joke, and then like internalize it and make it make it a thing, make it a, do it for the bit, and then have it become your life. <laughs> Dude, I am so for like, I listen to a lot of different any any. I'm kind of like, you know, a lot of people. I'm sure you might be the same. Where like, I can watch a rock documentary about. Mariah Carey and Slint. You know, I don't care. It's like I'm just so interested in music and everything mm-hmm. else. So, like, I listen to so many different um, sort of like uh, music related media that, like, I know so many different things. So, I'll read, like, for instance, I was listening to a um, 
podcast about propaganda, and this guy was like so into propaganda, and like I don't know any of their songs, and when I put them, I'm like I don't know, they sound like no effects, like whatever, and uh, but he's just like his life is for propaganda to the point where he's making this podcast just about propaganda, and I'm like I totally support that mission. I don't mm-hmm. have that desire to be that sort of like active in like any sort of musical community even the ones that i'm in but i love that that some people are so passionate about these obscure things that don't even exist anymore that they can't go see the bands that they're like willing to put their own money into something that they're not making the money back but they just need to keep this thing alive and need to keep this genre going and they just need everyone to know how like propaganda was the most you know important band of all time um and i just i just love that so much i think it's so cool yeah, I would so much rather talk about something like that than like talk about things that someone thinks sucks. Like at the end of the <laughs> yeah. day, I feel like, you know, ha- hater energy is just kind of like boring. Like I, I, it doesn't even matter whether I like the thing. Like if yeah. someone else really likes them, I will care. I will care about them liking yeah, it more than exactly. I like it myself. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's funny because when we did our last the last jazz june album it was around i think it was 2013 and i don't know what wave they were on but there was another way i don't know if that was fourth fifth wave whatever but it was like prawn and into it over it Mm -hmm. and some bands like that who are really cool a lot of top because we got on top shelf records so i became familiar with some of those bands and played with them and in a lot of the interviews people were obviously like hey you're from the old wave and this is the new wave what do you think about the new wave it sucks right and they really try to get me to say no all these fucking bands they're just trying to sound Mm -hmm. like this and that and it's just derivative you know they'd even question ask questions like do you think it's derivative and again i i might have actually thought that (laughs) because some of them were but i wasn't (laughs) going to say that because i'm not going to put down this band or these kids because you know who knows they might like my band and i if i don't like theirs who cares and if they're copying stuff that um you know i would have been copying the same band that they're copying if i was in that same position so like whatever it's it's all cool with me as long as they're not like beating people up in the parking lot of the (laughs) high school then they're cool i'm fine with it (laughs) right I, I did. I wanted to ask you about that experience of making uh, a new, a newer album and, you know, understanding that the Jazz June did d- continues to have a listenership. Um, when were you well, first aware of maybe the fact that the band had kind of a life past when you were actively playing music? I think it was like, I want to say when Facebook started because... It was way after that, but we put up a Facebook page at some point deep into the, you know, popularity of Facebook. Um, and all of a sudden, all these kids were like, dude, Jastune, I'm going to see you. I've got to play. Is your record still available? Blah, blah, blah. And then we started to, um, we were on iTunes and we started to sell, not a lot, but we started to sell regularly every month. We would have, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of digital sales of our old albums. You know, even like the first one, which was out, you know. 1997 or whenever Mm -hmm. and then um yeah and then it was just it was just kids getting in touch with us saying like hey play a show do this or what are you doing you're recording any music and we haven't done anything for i mean i was living in london for about five years at that point and i don't know somehow again because we're still in touch together someone was like hey man there's this whole thing going on now and people are still into the jazz june and like literally i mean this is going to sound really annoying to any sort of like aspiring emo band out there but we put out a thing saying we're gonna record some music does anyone know 
Like we find, yeah, we find like, oh yeah, cool. Like let's get, I, we're all dying to play with each other. Let's go and, 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 and play some songs. And then we're doing the internet thing and finally like, let's put out an album. Let's just put out a post. Hey, does anyone know a label or no, sorry. Does anyone know a recording studio we can mm-hmm. use that is good or whatever? And Top Shelf got in touch with us and was like, oh yeah, we'll put it out. We're like, okay, cool. Like, and then it just became, we were assigned to Top Shelf all of a sudden, which is like a really cool label for all those kind of like indie kids, at emo kids at the time. And then because of that, we started to play gigs. They put us on their CMJ festival. And um, yeah, I think they, I don't know if we had, oh no, we played with Braid, but there were a few ones where they were like, okay, you're going to headline some club in New York City. I was like, are you serious? Like, no one's going to be there. And then, you know, it wouldn't be sold out, but there'd be like a lot of kids there. And it's like, whoa. But it was funny because it was like, again, I thought it would just be all whatever, my age, whatever, I guess probably 40 or 38 or whatever, coming back out of the, you know, woodwork. But it was all like Mm -hmm. 19, 20-year-old kids still, you know, who were just into this new wave i guess of emo and knew about the bands that you know our band and other bands that uh were together then like braid and that kind of stuff and uh they would all come out and just be really psyched and sing along and yeah hang out and it was just a vibe it was cool that's wild i mean i especially you know the idea of going from you know a, a someplace says i'll put out your seven inch and like you sell, I don't know how many copies to like kind of seeing this unlimited resource of the iTunes library where as many people <laughs> in as many locations could buy your album as they wanted to. Like that must be kind of insane to see that happen. Well, the cool thing was like the other stuff that started happening. And again, this was um, 2013. So to me, this is all new technology. So when we played a show at a really cool place called the Boot and Saddle in Philadelphia. We played there a couple times because um, Philadelphia was like our hometown or whatever, even though we weren't from there. But um, so we played a gig there and this guy came up to me and he was like, dude, I'm so glad to see you. Thanks for playing or whatever. And um, he, I was like, oh, where are you from? And he's like, I'm, I am like, I flew here from like, I don't know, Minnesota or something like that. I was like, how the fuck did you find out about this gig? And he said, oh, I... I was listening to your album and then an ad came up and said, buy tickets to their gig in Philadelphia. So I bought it and then bought a plane ticket. I was like, holy shit. Like that's fucking, that algorithm works. Like whoever yeah. made that thing. <laughs> that's wh- whereas, that's like, insane to me. Yeah. Whereas we had to like, we'd go to a show and have a paper piece of paper that we always lose and be like, put your email address and next time we, or, and no, your, your physical address and we'll send you a postcard next time we're going to do a tour so that you'll know about the show because no one would ever fly out the shows. You'd go to like the town that you were playing the gig in. You go to the record store, be like, Oh, there's no flyers. And then they're like, nothing around town. And then there's no one at the show, you know? Right, <laughs> like, right. Just no one knew because the promoter, I just assumed that people would show up, you know, if you build it, they will come. So um, at any rate, you know, they just um, poorly promoted shows. But at any rate, um, you know, the fact that like, yeah, someone's listening to us on Spotify, sees an ad, buys a ticket and flies to see us. I mean, that's, that's the, the craziest thing I've heard in a long time. Well, um, anything, you know, what, what are you up to next? Anything you want to plug? Any, anything that's on your mind that you would like to share? Yeah, so I've got a few musical projects. Um, so I've got this band called Post Skeleton with a hyphen. Um, and we have one song on Bandcamp 
uh, not, is it Bandcamp? Yeah, that's the site. I always get it wrong. But yeah, we have one song on Bandcamp, and um, we are working towards recording an album EP, probably more like it. We're, we have like a load of um, songs that we recorded in a practice space. We've got this awesome guy, Bob Cooper, who like works his digital magic and makes it sound like we're at a recording studio. Um, so we've got probably an EP coming out. Not Well, we, we had a label who's going to put it out, and he just decided that he couldn't put the much enough like time and effort into it which is fair enough so i don't know we might end up self-releasing it or put someone mm-hmm. else so that's yeah post-skeleton and then i'm in an i was in this other band um years ago before i had kids um and it was called vervan vervan varvan which is like this finnish fray song that kids sing for easter uh, but it sounded like a really cool punk name our singer's Finnish, so it, it doesn't nice. relate. Anyway. <laughs> um, You're not appropriating Finnish culture no. totally. <laughs> that and, rocks. Uh, yeah, and we're putting out, well, yeah, songs that we recorded, again, six years ago, are being put out on an album, um, like a vinyl LP by these guys out um, in Germany, um, and Girlsville is the other label that's helping to put it out. And then... Um, I also started a band during lockdown called Dog Beach, which is like sort of like acoustic. Well, it's not acoustic, but it's like um, more countrified punk kind of stuff that uh-huh. um, that I've been playing with. And this is a total internet lockdown band because it's like ah. the guitarist is in um, North Carolina. One of the backup vocal, you know, the girl who sings vocals is in like Broadstairs, UK, and then the drummer's in Pennsylvania, and everyone's just kind of like chipped in. So I just need to finish uh, like mixing that stuff, and then that'll be done. But the, actually, the the name Dog Beach came from a really funny story. So, and this relates to the jazz tune. So we were in, um, yeah, we're driving from like somewhere in Arizona to San Diego on like our first US tour. So it was the first time. Any of us had been to the West Coast, and uh, we drove all night long. We're like, let's just go straight to the beach, you know what I mean? And um, so we drive in uh, to this beach, and like, it's a really, really, really long beach. Um, so we're like running down the beach together, like, hey, we made it. You know, we're just like, <laughs> <laughs> we're in California, you know, like we didn't break down, like awesome, so psyched, like 19-year-old kids, whatever. Yep. And uh, we're like, yelling it back and forth at each other and they were like what why man there's a lot of dogs here what are all these dogs doing here because there's like a million dogs and we're just like why are there so many dogs and this guy goes this like total and again this is the first piece of person we meet in california this total san diego dude is walking down the beach with no shirt on all buff and stuff and somehow hears this and goes dog beach bro get a grip <laughs> so, oh hell yeah so dog beach has just been like you know that phrase has been in my mind so um so anyway yeah so that i'll have out at some point but again i don't have any record labels putting post skeleton or dog beach out so open to literally any offers you want to start a record label put us out <laughs> anybody out anyone there. listening think you're starting a record label <laughs> yeah
Thanks for listening to that very special episode with Andrew Lowe from the Jazz June. You can check out his new music with Post Skeleton. That's Post hyphen skeleton, dare I say post dash skeleton uh, on Bandcamp. I will leave the link for the Bandcamp in the show notes. Uh, Very much hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can follow and introducing on Twitter at and intro pod. You can email us at and introducing pod at gmail.com. I've been getting some sick freaking emails these days. Uh, The SoundCloud per usual is soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. I feel like a single mom saying that all myself. And yes, I did have to poke into an earlier episode of and introducing to look up what the pattern for the ending was because I don't usually do it. Uh, I'm, I'm on my own here. I'm an independent woman. We're doing, we're sisters are doing it for themselves. Anyway, uh, you can find me at Miss Molly Mary on Twitter, uh, where I am simply rated these days. You can find Chris gone, but certainly not forgotten at (laughs) say what again. Chris is very busy. He's been working on a new podcast with Matt Chrisman from Chapo Trap House. It's called Hell of Presidents. It's about the presidency of the United States of America. It's uh, it's historical. It's funny. It's weird. I just listened to an episode. That's right. I got the VIP access. So yeah, ch- check that out. It, I'm not sure what day this episode is going to be up, but uh, Hell of Presidents launches exclusively on Stitcher Premium on friday july 2nd just in time for that holiday we all know and love the birthday of america you if you're listening right now can get a little little discount on stitcher premium code hell h-e-l-l uh and you can visit stitcherpremium.com slash hell to enter this promo code allegedly i think it's gonna be fun it's good to learn about the presidents anyway that's what chris is up to i'm up to this basically um and you can definitely hang on hang in there we've got we're plotting some more stuff for the end of the summer the rest of the summer i should say uh so uh stay tuned for more and introducing yeah